Welcome to episode 117. Today's guest is a captain and gold medalist from the USA curling team. John Schuster, thank you for joining me on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing I'm doing great. As, uh, as good as someone can be doing that's been cooped up in their house for a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I understand. Well, today we'll start with talking about your journey and how you got to be an Olympic curler. So first off, how did you get into the sport? How were you introduced to curling? So I'm from a small town even further up in northern Minnesota, a small town of Chisholm, Minnesota, and there's a curling club in Chisholm, a little four-sheeter in our town of 5,000 people up there, and my dad actually uh, curled in recreational league in town. So he played Thursday night men's league, and so I kind of always knew what it was because once, probably about once a month, we'd go, down, go up to the curling club and watch my dad play in league. And... Uh, and I never played because Chisholm's a huge basketball town. It's like the Hoosiers town of the state of Minnesota, kind of small town, bunch of state championships, legendary coach. Um, so I played basketball, and in about sixth grade, uh, I kind of was heavy into basketball, but I was starting to see that maybe that wasn't something I was going to continue doing. And, uh, and I went and tried curling on, on a Sunday night, kind of after basketball season had ended that year, and um and from the first time I stepped on the ice and actually threw a rock, it was just something that captivated me. Uh, there's something about throwing a curling rock that if you're really into it, if, you, if you're really focused on it, and just just the physics, the mechanics, and, and whatever it is about it, um, it, can hook, it can hook you. And it definitely hooked me that first time I was, I was curling in sixth grade. It's one of those sports for me that, when I watch it on TV, it always looks really interesting. And you guys, of course, make it look easy. But what goes into it? How do you train to eventually become so good that you're an Olympic curler? You know, one thing that I think, you know, you don't see, obviously, in any sport, really. But uh, from the time I took up curling and started doing it full time, um, ninth grade was I quit basketball after the eighth grade. And so ninth grade, I went to the curling club every single day and threw rocks and threw rocks and threw rocks, which is just practicing where you just continually throwing curling shots. And I would, I would shoot somewhere between a hundred and 200 curling shots, you know, every day. And it takes probably each curling shot probably takes 30 seconds or 45 seconds. So it's a pretty good time commitment. And through repetition, you get to develop muscle memory and, and not all curling ice is the same. So um, you know, for Chisholm, like where I grew up, the ice isn't that great, but, uh, you know, I, it's just developing that muscle memory. And, and then, you know, later in life, as I, you know, got older and became ultra competitive, then when I go, I try to get, develop the muscle memory at the beginning of a season and then, um, tweak it and use, you know, my cues from when I'm, when I'm throwing curling shots in my practices, it's like a, a golfer going to a driving range, whereas I'm trying to make it where I can repeat the same thing over and over and over again or or you know like a golfer might need to you know you're hitting a 95 yard wedge and now you need to hit a 98 yard wedge and they know how to you know crank it up three percent curling you know maybe you threw this one shot now I need to take you know three percent five percent ten percent off of that is is being able to gauge that and that comes from you know years and years and years of refining and fine-tuning and uh and honestly even daily refining and fine-tuning 
Well, on top of throwing, I know that there's a lot of strategy that goes into curling. And with you being a skip, short for skipper, you have to kind of help out and come up with a lot of the strategy for your team. So what kind of person are you strategy-wise? What do you try to aim for? What's your philosophy? You know, I I try to always call, um, you know, the right shot. And, and the right shot might be different for different teams and and people and whatnot. But, you know, I take I take into account several things when, when my team's playing. And I take into account my teammates' strengths and the opponent's strengths and my teammates' potential weaknesses and the opponent's weaknesses that I perceive. Um, and then you you always look at the end and the scoreboard, you know? So uh, my strategy isn't the same if our team is ahead or behind. It's not the same even if we're ahead early in the game or if we're ahead late in the game or behind early in the game, behind late in the game, it can change. So, um, but my strategy that I've, you know, the strategies that I've developed and, um, and even the tactics for certain situations have evolved over years. And, you know, for what I, for me, I what I try to do is, you know, every time I play and something happens that I'm like, oh, like I did that wrong. Okay, put that in the memory bank. Or, oh, that really worked well. And, you know, we hadn't done it exactly like that, but now put that in the memory bank. So, um, you know, I, I'm continually working on refining strategy. And I always think when I watch curling on TV, if I'm watching the Canadian National Championship, which is called the Briar, probably the biggest curling tournament in the world, we can watch on ESPN3 now down in the U.S. Um, you know, I'm trying to call the shot before they call the shot or, say okay i think i would play this and uh and i know that my strategy is doing all right because um you know if even if that team doesn't call that shot usually an announcer is like well maybe i'd be playing this so um you know it, it gives me a little bit of confidence that that i'm on the right track as far as playing the right shot for the right situation during a game when you're preparing for a team i know for example in football or basketball coaches and players will go and watch film do you watch film or do you make charts marking where shots have landed for the team that you're going against? No, there's definitely not charting or film watching necessarily. Um, we do have coaches that do some scouting that say, okay, this player on this particular team isn't having a great week or this part player on this particular team is having an absolutely outstanding week. So we can't expect, you know, that we're going to get any misses from that player. Um, we do look, I do look at, there's sheets that show percentages for the other teams and I'll go through and it, and it shows what shots each player is shooting. And so it might be an outturn draw or an intern takeout or those particular kind of shots where maybe uh, a player's percentages are showing up lower than you'd expect, or maybe that's uh, something that sticks out. And then sometimes you kind of put that in the memory bank, but you know, for the most part, um, you know, we know these other teams because we played against them so much, knowing their strengths and knowing their tendencies as far as how they play the game, that uh, that you a lot of times go off of, you know, past times you've played them and other games you've watched them play, but don't necessarily watch film like the day before, the you know, hours before the game or anything like that. You won your first Olympic medal as a bronze in 2006 with Team USA. I believe on that team, if I remember correctly, you were a lead, and then eventually you left that team to become a skipper of your own team. So why did you choose to do that, trying to take the or trying to get the skipper position? You know, I I came into curling and you know as a, as a you know high schooler, and and the strategy part of the game was always something that I really really loved and enjoyed, and um, 
And I always thought that it was something that I was good at. And, you know, even when I played lead on the team in 2006, I was the vice skip on the team. So, uh, so Pete Fenson was a skip of that team. And when he was throwing his shots, I was the person in the house calling the line and, and going through the, the process of calling the shots with him. And that was something that, um, because of how seriously I kind of always took my development of, of strategy and tactics. And, uh, and yeah, in that team, we had played together for three years and I was always just looking, you know, when I started my men's career, which was with team fencing in 2003 was to develop and grow and learn as much as I possibly could for, you know, skipping my own team down the road. So after we won that bronze medal, um, you know, it wasn't, it was obviously a tough choice to walk away from, you know, the first team that had ever won a medal for the U S in curling and a team, you know, we went and won the national championship that year and we went to the world championships and got fourth place. Uh, but you know, part of something I always wanted to do was go and learn how to honestly become kind of a professional curler and use what I learned and, and help build my own team and, uh, and chase after, uh, you know, dreams of, of going on more teams to the Olympics and, it so happened that, you know, skipping was where I thought I had talent as far as the strategy part and um, and also for, for finding the right pieces to have success to, you know, get to the Olympics and to be successful at the Olympics. And you say being a professional curler, what does that mean in terms of, <laughs> does that mean it's like your full day job or do you work a job and then curl at night or how does that work? <laughs> so, so for me, I've kind of, I've, I really only had, a couple full-time jobs for a, a few, you know, never even a full-time full season job really um, since I've been playing in the Olympics. But, you know, I, I would say more being a professional while you're on the ice. It's not necessarily a profession for most. Um, you know, for me, it, I always, I always laugh that I, I'm a professional curler, whereas I curl full-time and I don't have a job. However, um, I don't get paid a professional's salary. So <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty much a stay-at-home dad when, when I'm gone and my wife is a pharmacist and, you know, the way we have, you know, set up our lives and the choices we've made are, you know, so I could pursue, uh, you know, curling world championships and Olympics, you know, at the same time as, as raise a family and, and do what we do here too. So, um, yeah, it's it, I, I practice and train you know now in the weight room as well and that kind of stuff as if it's my job and you know as as if it's my full-time job and that's definitely helped me focus on the ice where I didn't have to worry about what you know my wife was thinking or what other people you know around me were, were thinking as whether or not they were you know supporting that decision of curling as much as I did you know when I can actually treat it like my job and have that expectation that I'm putting that much work into it as if it is my job okay yeah, in 2014, I think with USA Curling, that was an interesting year with them making their first high-performance program to try to train the athletes for international competition. But they didn't invite you, but how were you able to overcome not being invited, still coming back and qualifying for the Olympics? So it wasn't necessarily the first high-performance program per se. Um, they'd always had, you know national team funding you know even back as far as 2006 our team was you know fully funded heading into the olympics um but the thing for me is i had never actually even been on a team that was one of those funded funded teams for more than a season 
uh, throughout the time from 2006 all the way through 2014 anyways. Um, so, you know, the fact that I was the previous skip at the previous two Olympics and we were the teams that, you know, underperformed from the United States Olympic Committee's perspective, you know, I understand where they went to a new model where coaches selected the players. Um, but for me, the one part about also the way that the Olympics work is um, the right to compete at, act makes it where players and and people competing at high levels in sport always have a right to compete or to try to earn their spot to represent your country at events that lead to the Olympics. And even though there was a national team and, and I wasn't necessarily selected for that the first year, I knew that I could still put together a team of four players and go compete on our curling tour circuit, compete at our national championships, win their national championships and earn the right to still go to the world championships. And, uh, you know, the fact that we still had that avenue made it where it wasn't necessarily, you know, if you didn't have that avenue, it would have been a huge blow, a major blow where, you know, maybe I wouldn't have continued on throughout our sport because, you know, I wouldn't have had an avenue to the world championships and the Olympics, the things that I worked my entire life to do, but because I still had that avenue and I knew, a lot of the things they were going to be doing because I kind of helped them develop that program, the same one I got cut from. Um, it made it pretty easy for me to find. And luckily, you know, they had three players along with me that I thought were pretty darn good, some of the best in our country that also weren't on that national team and were able to put a team together and a team that ended up being kind of a team of destiny. Yeah, and with that team, can you take me through what it was like putting those guys together and building that squad? Yeah, the initial squad didn't even have John Lansteiner on it, truthfully. You know, the day that I got the news that they didn't select me for the high-performance program and we knew who got selected, um, you know, I went over and I, I found Tyler, and, and he was working at the time at, at the liquor store his family owns, and um, and I asked him if he was still going to continue curling after that year, and he wasn't sure. And I said, well, I didn't make the high-performance program, and Ty's like, yeah, I'm not really surprised because um, – you know, just from whatever he had a feeling and he goes, I didn't even try out cause you know, I don't, I, I believe in forming curling teams based on, you know, strengths of players and, and things. So, you know, I said, Hey, you know, if we, if you want to give it a try, I would love to, you know, join forces since we had competed against each other for so long and we we're very good friends that live in the same town. And, um, he said, you'd, you know, think about it and whatever. And we went and talked, you know, I think the next day or a couple days later and, and said, yeah, we're going to do this. And, We'd heard that Matt Hamilton didn't get picked into the program, and we knew he was always a great player and, and you know, very young and full of energy. And we decided if we could harness his energy as opposed to have it be something that would drive us both insane. And uh, we decided we could harness it and uh, and really, you know, work with him on, on how to hopefully for all of us to become a good team together. And Landsteiner, uh, he wasn't even sure he wanted to curl, and he actually – said i'm gonna take the year off and we found another another guy who had just aged out at the juniors which is 21 and over um so trevor hosted a kid from duluth that was living in madison so we thought it worked out well him and matt could practice together and um and that was our original foursome and we went and played our first um two events together in september and october and after those two events we had some success um but i just wasn't seeing trevor being as far along as i had hoped and, uh, and I had asked John Lansteiner if he had had any um, <laughs> if he had any second thoughts as to uh, coming back and playing. And and he said, yeah, I've been missing it a lot. I've been watching a lot of line scores, watching your guys' games. So, um, so we invited him to come back. And he came back. And when he came back, we kind of all saw that this was 
this was exactly what we had hoped we were getting into. And, uh, and Trevor stayed with us the rest of that year, and, and he won a national championship with us, and he supported us and was a, a phenomenal teammate to us the rest of that season. But you know, he wanted to be on the ice too, and after that year, he uh, he moved on and went back to playing men's with some other teams. Um, but that was kind of, you know, our team came together, and at the end of that season, we won the Nationals, we went to the Worlds, and we lost in a tiebreaker. Um, it was the first time that the end of a non-Olympic season felt like the beginning of something for me, and uh, and it was pretty exciting for our team as a whole to now be accepted into our high performance program, you know, as a foursome where we can now get the sports psychology and the athletic training and the planning and the scheduling and the funding that, you know, and that the rest of those teams are getting. So um, when you added all those pieces onto, you know, this, this spark that we kind of all saw as a team, uh, it really, gave us a, a huge lift to do what we ended up doing in the end. You take this team and you get to the 2018 Winter Olympics. My first question for you on 2018, what's it like being at the Olympics? What do you enjoy most? What's hard about it? You know, being at the Olympics, what what I love the most is you're at this competition where you're at the top of your sport and all the rest of the athletes, like in the village and participating in all the rest of their events are in the exact same shoes that you're in the top of their sport and so you're you're mixed in with them and see their you know even their eating habits because you all eat at the same dining center in the village and um and you know some of their rituals and what they do when they're not competing like you know are they hanging out in the you know athlete lounge or they stick to themselves in the room are they out out and about you know being touristy in the city so i think just being amongst other top athletes of sports that have put in similar probably life's work that you put in and, and seeing there and being around it is like the best part of the Olympics. Maybe the hardest part of the Olympics is also now, you know, our world championships, I've always had success at them. I've never had won one yet, but you know, every team I'd been on other than 2003 had made either a tiebreaker for the playoffs or the playoffs, which is essentially the medal round. And, uh, and all of a sudden the Olympics changed that because instead of having just the people in your sport who kind of know who you are and whatever, and there's not a, there's TV always in Canada, and a little bit in the U S kind of thing, but now, you know, there's millions of people reading and watching around the world and social media. And, um, it's just a much bigger, this, this much bigger, you know, it's not a bubble anymore. It's, it's the earth, <laughs> you know, it's sports fans throughout the world, all watching and critiquing and caring about. And, uh, and there's definitely a weight that, you know, for me was was very difficult until uh, halfway through this last Olympics. You mentioned being in the Olympic Village. You're around so many athletes from different cultures and all over the world, as you mentioned. What's the biggest thing or the most interesting thing that you learned from being around them and watching them? Um, you know, I think I think that that all sports are similar and in what you do when you're not competing, like out on the ice for us or, you know, out on the ice for any of these sports is that, you know, you're getting a lot of rest and spending a lot of alone time. They're probably in hotels usually where now they're in their Olympic village rooms and we're in Olympic village rooms instead of hotels, same thing. And, um, and seeing, you know, how each sport kind of like all they are have communities, even amongst other countries. Um, I think that's probably the most interesting you know, part about it is seeing all these other 
communities like we have within the curling world within all these other sports as well and uh you know for me it's some of the fun stuff is you know i was we were training in the same weight room as as uh a bunch of you know north korean (laughs) women's hockey players at the same time and you know at the same point you know we're living in in the same building as you know not this olympics but as past olympics you know i i was hanging out with you know Team USA NHL players. I've got to know Zach Parisi and Ryan Suter, who are <laughs> key members of the Minnesota Wild, very, very well. You know, over a couple Olympics, so it's that kind of stuff is uh, is some of the most interesting. You know, have been some of the more interesting things that I've seen. You know, living in the Olympic Village amongst those athletes. Okay, well, I want to dive into that 2018 team that you were on, the first curling team for USA to win a gold medal. So. You start out the round robin two and four in terms of record. How do you rattle off four straight wins? Can you walk me through what that was like? You know, I think our our team had always been a team that, you know, had grinded our way into the medal rounds every year we've been together. We had got fifth place at the Worlds, third place at the Worlds, fourth place at the Worlds, the three years we were together. And, you know, of those ones, we never necessarily were up around the top of the standings, the very top of the standings at least, ever. So, you know, we were two and four, and granted, yeah, we had Canada, Switzerland, Great Britain ahead, which were three teams that were, you know, medal favorites coming in, along with Sweden. And, you know, all you can really do is, you know, is try to figure out as a team how to how to come out and, and play great. And for me personally, you know, I was able to exercise a few demons somewhere between the our loss to Norway that put us at two and four, and... Uh, the game where we played against Canada to start that run where we rattled off five games in a row. Um, you know, so once I was able to kind of get out of my own head and, and play for me and play for my teammates, um, you know, all of a sudden I started making more shots. And when I make, when a skip makes more shots in a team, uh, teams results generally, you know, follow. And, uh, and it was just for me, a, a huge, very, you know, pride instilling, time for me that I was able to exercise those demons and, and come back and, and be this, the player and the skip that might, that, you know, helped our team get to the Olympics, um, at the Olympics and, and to show that what I had thought and the work I'd put in over the course of my career, you know, was good enough. Like I thought it was to give ourselves a chance to, to get on a podium or to stand atop a podium at the Olympics. As I read and learn more about curling, I see a common theme of so much of the game being mental and about how your mentality is and how you put your mind together before you start. So my question on that is for you, how were you able to mentally get it all together to where you were able to help your team go on that kind of a run? You know, for me, I, uh, the main thing that I, I, I had probably done, whether I wanted to or not, throughout the course of my you know, Olympic career was I had probably put too much stock into what what I looked like or what it what our teams looked like to the world or to the viewing public. And you know, I'd never thought about that ever before in any other venues at world championships, at national championships, at world curling tour events. All I cared about was what was going on with myself and my teammates on the ice. And uh and for me, it was I, I had realized or I'd came to the realization when we were two and four that, you know, if if my kids wanted to show someday when they were old and gray and they wanted to show their grandkids footage of 
you know, their great grandpa, if I'm dead and gone or whatever at the Olympics, they're only, if they wanted to show happy footage, the only time they were going to get a chance to do that was of me playing lead and holding the broom and probably not throwing any shots from 2006. And I just decided that I was going to give my kids three games where I actually was out there getting joy from, um, you know, the game I love that I put my entire life's work into. And so just that peace of mind that I was just going to go out there and, and, you know, and have joy out on the ice and, and do what I do what I did for my entire career to get to that point for me and for them and not for anybody else other than, you know, myself and my family and my teammates. And then all of a sudden it got easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's all I can tell you is, is all of a sudden the Olympics that had been so incredibly hard became incredibly easy. Yeah, that is wow. That's a great mentality. So the 2018 team start two and four, the four straight wins. You beat Canada, then you've got the gold medal on your line, and you have the shot of your life against Sweden. Can you walk me through putting that together from your perspective? Um, I mean, you know, getting to the gold medal game, we beat Canada, and, and we're guaranteed at least a silver. And um, personally, myself, I'd I'd had a a fairly good record lifetime against the team from Sweden. I think, you know, coming into the Olympics, we had beat them three out of four times coming in and we lost them in the round robin. But, um, you know, it was, it was one of those things where we are comfortable being on the ice against that particular team. And, and for us, we knew we were going to go out there and be as focused and bringing the same mentality that we had brought those previous four games. And even during that game, we could kind of see them a little bit, not nearly as comfortable or having as much, you know, fun out there as we were having. And, and, uh, and yeah, so, you know, my, my team played a, played a great game to give ourselves the hammer late in the game and even end in the eighth end. And, and, you know, we didn't make all whole shots that end, but, but we controlled shooters and they had to gamble. And, and when he didn't quite make his last shot perfectly, we obviously saw the shot sitting in front of us. And, um, you know, I, me and Tyler put the broom down and we, everybody knew what was at stake. But, you know, when I got to the other end, all I saw was a shot that I had made, you know, the week before I left for the Olympics in a one-on-one game. I play with, uh, with a retired guy from our club and, uh, and it was really just a moment where I got in the hack and threw the rock and, and Tyler said clean when I let it go. And I've rewatched it obviously probably a hundred, hundred times, um, you know, just from having to rewatch it. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was really a, the entire time of, of from the time that I knew I was going to get a chance to throw the shot that would change our lives um, to the time where the rocks hit and we were sitting there with five points. Um, there was, I didn't feel any pressure. All I, all I felt was, you know, was kind of the, the joy that had been building over the last five days leading into that. When you go back and rewatch that, what goes through your head? Um, you know, not really anything. I, it felt like kind of, uh, you know, even when I sat in the hack and looked up and, and it seemed like deja vu, I'm like, man, I must've sat in the hack for a long time. But I mean, they were so busy showing these other shots around the rink that by the time you didn't even, you don't even actually see me slide out with the rock or throw it, the rocks out of my hand from the time the cameras even caught up to it. So, um, you know, it seemed like it was a, like it was a long enough time where I had a lot more time to think from the time where, we put the broom down to the time that I threw the shot, but it happened so, so quickly. 
And I think that's what kind of shocks me every time I, you know, maybe watch it back. Some people call that 2018 run the Maricurl on ice. How does that make you feel? I mean, I get it. I definitely get it. And it, it's pretty cool to, to think about, you know, all the different ways that it could have been, you know, you know, miraculous. But, uh, but I think, you know, for our, for myself and our team, it's, it didn't really feel that way, but I think that's probably, you know, even for the 1980 hockey team, it probably didn't feel like a miracle for them either. So, um, yeah, it's, it's always fun to, to be put in the same, you know, that, that kind of puts us in the same atmosphere as, uh, as the 1980 hockey team, which is, you know, arguably the greatest Olympic moment, you know, in U S Olympic history, at least. So, um, to be thought of in the same wavelength as, as those guys and what they did back in 1980 is is pretty awesome. Definitely. Well, John, that's all the questions I had for you. Thank you for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me, Luke. You're welcome.